0: Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet's good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups, or at least with partners, That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm really aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great word of God. If this is you, grab a few friends and start working your way through the word diet. If this isn't you, I'll bet you've got a few friends in that boat. So get on the word diet with them. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Leviticus, a greatly underrated book. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible, so please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Today we're going to work through Leviticus 26 and 27 and finish up our 12-week series on this great book. Previous episodes are available on podcasts through iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. Not just of leviticus but the other books we've covered as well so i look forward to going through these last two chapters with you and then doing an overview and summary of the book at the end lord be with us today as we study your scriptures this is not something in scripture that we look forward to diving into many times lord but you've shown us so many great things in this uh, terrific book and i pray that that would continue today lord we pray that it would change how we see you and what you want from us and for us in the days to come in jesus name amen Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, this station and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Leviticus 26 and 27 today. Uh, By way of introduction, a couple of remarks on chapter 26. This is explicitly Old Covenant. Both halves here describe both the rewards for obedience and the punishment or disciplines for disobedience. There's a parallel of this in Deuteronomy 28 as the Pentateuch closes out. And in more New Testament-ish sorts of ways of thinking about this, you might think of the book of Proverbs, which we use all the time as Christians, and Galatians 6, 7 through 10 on reaping and sowing, that this is how God has set life to run in general terms. Such covenants are also a common arrangement and a format in Near Eastern culture, but the differences are that these would usually be petitions for the gods to act in their realms. Here, it's God making promises and emphasizing His role as the capital-C Creator and capital-J Judge of all people and all things. So, we're going to read the rewards for obedience half of this chapter, starting in verses 1 going through verse 13. Do not make idols or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourselves, and do not place a carved stone in your land to bow down before it. I am the Lord your God. Observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season, and the ground will yield its crops and the trees of the field their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest, and the grape harvest will continue until planting, and you will eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. I will grant peace in the land, and you will lie down and no one will make you afraid. I will remove savage beasts from the land, and the sword will not pass through your country." You will pursue your enemies and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. I will look on you with favor and make you fruitful and increase your numbers and I will keep my covenant with you. You will still be eating last year's harvest when you have to move it out to make room for the new. I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people." I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high." So you may have noticed that verses 1 and 2 is a summary of the first four commandments. It explicitly repeats the second and fourth commandments. Both of these end with, I am the Lord, which alludes to the first and third commandment, and we'll see the same wording as this passage concludes in verse 13. Verse 1 specifies idols, images, sacred stones, and carved stones that they were not to bow down before them. Verse 2 has a Sabbath, but then adds the phrase, have reverence for my sanctuary. We did see this in chapter 19, verse 30, and it underlines the importance of God's presence and his sanctuary in the book of Leviticus. Now the Second and Fourth Commandments appear often in the Old Testament, and when they appear within the Ten Commandments, they get the longest descriptions. About the Second Commandment, Matthew Henry says, No sin was more provoking to God than this, and there was none that they were more addicted to, and which afterwards proved of more pernicious consequence to them. And then the Fourth Commandment, Henry writes, says nothing tends more to corrupt religion than the use of images and devotion, so nothing contributes more to the support of it than keeping the Sabbaths and reverencing the sanctuary. In other words, the negative of the second commandment is more easily avoided by positively practicing the fourth commandment. Verse three sets up the structure of the rest of the passage. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, then dot, dot, dot. The if is followed by seven I wills from God in verses four through 13, and they're followed by many you will be able tos. And so, God provides, and then we participate. God will do these things, and then we are able to do other things. Some interesting words here in verse 3 as well. Decrees and commands are slightly different. The latter probably implies something new and specific, whereas the former, the decrees are things that are already established through the law. And then the verbs are interesting as well. Follow and obey. Synonyms, uh, they have some parallel, but they're also different. The pronouns also interesting. If you follow my decrees, is he speaking here to individuals or the nation? I think it's some of each, but it also underlines how it's impossible to do perfect justice here. How can God uh, detail the difference between what happens to individuals and what happens to the community? And the fact is that what individuals do has an impact on the community. So this should be read as both a promise to the individual and a promise to the nation of Israel. As for God saying, I will, the first in verses 4 through 5 is to take care of agricultural provision and material prosperity. Notice the phrase, sending rain in its season. Rain out of season is not particularly helpful got to have the rain in season. A lot of verses come to mind here. There's a great passage in Deuteronomy 11. I'm just going to read verses 10 through 12 from that passage. The land you're entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot as in a vegetable garden. But the land you're crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. It is a land the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. The promised prosperity here agriculturally reminds one of Malachi 3.10, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Or in New Testament terms, the great passage from Jesus in Matthew 6, 25 through 33, not to worry about material things, ends with verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Or in spiritual terms, John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, the end of verse 5 picks up the theme of safety, and that's continued in verses 6 through 8 with the next I will. God says, I will take care of peace and military success. You know, food without security is not much use. We know that from Maslow's hierarchy, and we also know it probably most famously in the story of Gideon in Judges 6. The defense here is described as peace in the land, but also no beast, which speaks to internal enemies. And the sword which speaks to external enemies the punchline in verse 6 no one will make you afraid psalm 4 verse 8 in peace i will lie down and sleep for you alone lord make me dwell in safety verses 7 and 8 speaks to going on offense including some wild numbers here of military success the sort of thing we see later in israel's history from gideon samson jonathan and others the next big I will from God is verses 9 through 12. He says, I'll take care of population, part of the what was promised Abraham in verse 9 here. Verse 10, harvest productivity, again, revisited. This is a land of plenty, but it's going to be blessed by God. Underlines the importance of food at that time, something we just take very much for granted these days. His dwelling place, the tabernacle, but more about his presence. And not just at the tabernacle, but throughout the land. This is a type of restoration of the ideal from the Garden of Eden, that God would be present with them. Verse 11, God says, I will not abhor you, so that's negative, a symbol of God's mercy. Verse 12 picks up his active and loving, gracious presence with them. I will walk among you, again, very much like Genesis 3 and also described in Revelation 2. They will be God's people. And then finally, the great theological close to this passage, God says, I am who brought you up out of Egypt. Why? So you would no longer be slaves, and the yoke is broken to enable them to walk with heads held high. What a beautiful verse that is. Two last things to say about this passage in general. The prophet Ezekiel runs with a lot of these themes uh, in the middle of his book. If you look at the ends of chapter 34, 36, and 37, you'll see Ezekiel talking about many of these same ideas. And finally, a reiteration of how is this important to us. You know, we're not under the Old Covenant anymore, but God has set up life to run in a way that is similar to the Old Covenant to some extent. If we live in accordance with God's law, we will find at least spiritual blessings, peace, joy, and the like. James 1.25, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So it's not the tight formula of the Old Covenant as promised in the Old Testament, but there's still something to this, that if we follow a good and great God, we're going to be blessed. Even though there are difficulties in this life, we may have troubles and persecution, but walking with God is its own reward, and God promises to bless. All right, let's take our first break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Leviticus 26 and 27 today as we wrap up this great book. First segment, we talked about the first half of Leviticus 26, the rewards for obedience under the old covenant as it's laid out here. Uh, Second half we'll cover in this segment, uh, the punishments for disobedience. Let's start by reading verses 14 through 17. But if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and to violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring upon you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and drain away your life. You will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. So after the blessings of verses 1 through 13 that come from obedience, now we have the opposite of that, and it starts with the sobering phrase, but if not... So the formula is the same. Verse 3 was, if you do this, then verses 4 through 13 was the blessings that would come from God. Here we have verses 14 and 15. If you do not do this, then we have 18 things that God says I will do to you in verses 14 through 35. The list in this opening passage is terrifying enough. Sudden terror, wasting diseases, fever... That will destroy your sight, drain away your life. Crops eaten by enemies, you'll be defeated and ruled over by your enemies. You'll flee even when no one is pursuing. So, obviously, rough business. And really, many of these are the opposite of the blessings that were promised in the first half of the chapter. Now, what were their sins? Verse 14 says, You didn't listen to me. Verses 14 and 15, You didn't carry out my commands. Verse 15, You reject my decrees, you abhor my laws. There's that word abhor again that we saw back in chapter 26, verse 11, and verse 15 sums it up, and so violate my covenant. Matthew Henry says, these are not sins of ignorance and infirmity. God had provided sacrifices for those, not the sins they repented of and forsook, but the sins that were presumptuously committed and obstinately persisted in. Or as G. Campbell Morgan puts it, we may change our experience of his government by a change of attitude toward it. If we walk with him, he walks with us, and all his infinite resources of wisdom and power and love are at our disposal, as we saw in verses 1 through 13. If we change our course and walk contrary to him, as in verses 14 through 35, he still pursues his way of wisdom, love, and power, but his goings are against us, and we experience his opposition. So, we're going to skim verses 18 through 28, but it continues to build. Verse 18 opens with, after all this, and you might have thought that'd be enough, but no. Consequences here, verses 19 and 20 for the crops. Verses 21 and 22, afflictions and wild animals. Verses 24 through 26, sword and plague. Now, what are the sins mentioned here? Three times to remain hostile toward God, literally to act or walk with hostility. So God interprets our disobedience as actual hostility. And God promises to return that hostility in verses 24 and 28. Another look at the sins is that they did not listen to him. It's mentioned three times. They refused to listen to me one more time, and they do not accept my correction or discipline. This is connected to stubborn pride in verse 19. Of course, pride causes all kinds of trouble. That's a common theme in scripture. And the other Interesting parallel here is that if you are going to be hardened towards God, God promises to likewise harden the ground that you'll be using for agriculture. This idea of punish, correct, and discipline for your sins is a recurring theme in this passage. It mentions seven times over at one point, which of course is figurative for complete. It reminds one of the three cycles of seven judgments in the middle of Revelation. And the word we choose here actually matters quite a bit punish and correct not quite as good as discipline because discipline aims at our good. The phrasing here is, I will give you discipline. I will gift you discipline. It's a gift to us to receive discipline from God or from parents, good parents and the like. Amos 3.2 is interesting in this regard. God says, you only have I chosen of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you or discipline you for all your sins. It reminds me of the difference between testing and tempting. Testing hopes that someone will succeed, tempting hopes they will fail. A discipline is aimed for our good. Punishment and correction, not quite as clear about the intent behind those. The problem here, though, is that the contempt of God's commandments that we read about in verses 14 through 17, here is contempt for his corrections. And Matthew Henry says, if lesser judgments do not do their work, God will send greater judgments. Those who will not be reformed by the judgments of God must expect to be ruined by them. One last comment. It's interesting that this passage has quite a bit of poetry and creativity in each of the four sections, but from here in verses 27 through 35, it just gets absolutely brutal Again, a passage we're going to skim, but verse 29 talks about eating the flesh of children, so you have cannibalism. Verse 30, destroy altars, I will abhor you. There's that word again. Verse 31, cities in ruins, sanctuaries destroyed, and most importantly, God would have no delight in their offerings. Verse 32, lay waste to the land so your enemies will be appalled. Verse 33, scattering, alluding to the future exile. And then 34 and 35, the Sabbath years to make up for when the land didn't get its rest, a theme we talked about in last week's episode. In all of this, notice the symmetries as well compared to the first half of the chapter. Fertile land becomes unproductive. They had God's favor, and now he's setting his face against his people. They would defeat their enemies. Now they're being defeated by their enemies. Wild beasts disappear. Now they devour. It was peace. Now it's the sword. They would settle the land, but they're going to end up in exile. All right, let's read 36 through 39. As for those of you who are left, I will make their hearts so fearful in the lands of their enemies that the sound of a wind blown leaf will put them to flight. They will run as though fleeing from the sword, and they will fall even though no one is pursuing them. They will stumble over one another as though fleeing from the sword even though no one is pursuing them, so you will not be able to stand before your enemies. You will perish among the nations. The land of your enemies will devour you. Those of you who are left will waste away in the lands of their enemies because of their sins. Also, because of their father's sins, they will waste away. The first thing to say here is that usually when you talk about the remnant, you're usually thinking of a faithful remnant, which has some optimism. But there's nothing like that here. Verses 36 and 39 refers to those of you who are left, and they were decimated to begin with, and it just gets worse. Verse 36, so fearful that the sound of a windblown leaf will put them to flight. Again, great poetry here. Verses 36 and 37, fearful, flee, fall, stumble over one another, even though no one is pursuing. I mean, just terrible language here. The bottom lines in 37 and 38, you will not be able to stand before your enemies. You will perish or waste away among the nations. The other phrase that's interesting here is at the end of verse 39 that the father's sins are also involved in this. So it's not just individual, not just social, but it's generational as well the parents' failures are visited on the children directly and indirectly. Given the long time frame described here, and that this generation would die in the wilderness, it's interesting that the current generation would not experience any of these things. So this is prophetic for the most part, looking well into the future and at Israel's disobedience centuries later. The last thing to wrestle with at this point is that as in Deuteronomy 28, the parallel passage, The list of punishments here is much longer. And so, this may speak to the importance of sticks over carrots. I mean, you need carrots as well, but maybe sticks need to be more impressive, certainly more detail, maybe not so much more punishments, but very specific disciplines here, rather than the general blessings that are detailed in the first half of the chapter. certainly implies its seriousness. There's no room for confusion here over where God's coming from on this. You know, we know God is slow to anger, 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the flip side of that is if you press that too far, it's going to result in judgment and terrible discipline. Matthew Henry says, God does not begin with the sorest judgments to show that he is patient and delights not in the death of sinners. But if they repent not, he will proceed to the sorest judgments to show that he is righteous and that he will not be mocked. All of this foreshadows Israel's future, points to the depth of sin nature, and underlines the Old Covenant's eventual failure. My last thought here is that discipline, restoration, redemption are wonderful and that they're at the heart of God, but they're also necessarily more complicated than simple obedience. Anyone who's been a parent or reflected on their childhood under parenting understands this the far easier thing to do is just to obey and be blessed and let God be a blessing through us to other people. Verses 40 through 45, but if they will confess their sins and the sins of their fathers, their treachery against me and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies, then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. For the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will pay for their sins because they rejected my laws and abhorred my decrees. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God." But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. And so the passage takes this third and final turn. If there's repentance, then God will turn in mercy. Some interesting phrases here, verse 41, when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled. We're used to thinking about uncircumcised hearts from Paul in Romans 2, but it's actually an Old Testament thought as well. It's actually as early as Deuteronomy 10.16 and Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. It appears also in Jeremiah 9.26. So the idea of an uncircumcised heart is actually an Old Testament concept that Paul picks up in Romans 2. Verse 41 also has when they pay for their sins, and that's a little troubling for the New Testament believer, but here pay for is to make amends, restitution, verse 40 had confession. And so, look at the combination here. You've got confession of sin, remorse for sin, repentance, and submission to God's justice with respect to sin. And note, there's no explicit reference to sacrifice here. So, you could say, well, it's assumed. We're in the book of Leviticus, after all. But it's interesting, again, uh, pointing forward to the ministry of Jesus, that there's no reference to sacrifice here explicitly. And ultimately, it's the sacrifice of Jesus which is going to take care of all this in a way but Leviticus, with for all its rituals and efforts, is not going to be able to take care of. From there you have verse forty two, I will, will remember my covenant with the patriarchs. I will remember the land. The land will get its Sabbaths, they will pay for their sins or consequences, they will not be rejected or abhorred. God is not going to break his covenant. Verse forty five, he's going to remember the covenant. So discipline is not God's last word to his wayward people and the consequences are meant for their repentance, not God's revenge. Again, we have God's mercy and his grace. Matthew Henry says, none are so ready to repent as God is to forgive upon repentance. Still, all this said, to me, the top thing to take from this for the New Testament believer is the necessity and the necessary limits of the Old Covenant. Andrew Murray has a great book on this called The Two Covenants, but you need the Old Covenant to set up the New Covenant. The Old Covenant's limits are what lead to the Old Covenant. Acts 15, 10, and 11. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as the Gentiles are. As Murray puts it, in the Old Covenant, man had the opportunity given to him to prove what he could do. That covenant ended in man proving his own unfaithfulness and failure. In the new covenant, God is to prove what he can do with man, all unfaithful and feeble as he is, when God is allowed and trusted to do all the work. Okay, let's take a break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio. Podcasts of previous episodes are available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Leviticus 26 and 27 today as we wrap up this great book. First two segments we covered chapter 26. This segment will cover chapter 27. This is the redemption of stuff dedicated to God through voluntary vows. So this would be items given to God or the tabernacle or the priest over and above the usual offerings, typically as a symbol of dedication to God, the tabernacle, the nation, and so on. Think of giving an item to finance a church's building campaign as an example. Verse 2 describes this as a special vow, which implies it's relatively challenging and relatively rare. And here it's typically substituting money for an in-kind gift, perhaps after rethinking the costs of the gift itself, wanting to use money instead. In a nutshell, the regulation is that if it was required to be given, Or if it's an offerable or clean animal, for example, then no redemption is allowed. If it's not, for example, it's an unclean animal, then it's fine to redeem it. And so this is laying out the regulations for that. To me, the biggest question that comes here is, how does this connect to chapter 26? And another way of asking the question is, why is this the last thing we're talking about in Leviticus? So commentators often see this as an appendix, that it's a later edition by an editor, And it does provide a chiastic structure for the entire book. Remember, chiasm is the idea of bookends from the beginning to the end, and then it builds towards the things in the middle, and that points to the highlight, for example, of Leviticus 16. Everything surrounds it and builds toward that great middle. And if so, then chapter 27 ties in very nicely with the sacrifices Of chapters 1 through 7 and provides that structure. But there are other answers available to us. One would be that it provides a positive ending compared to the divine threats that closed out chapter 26. You could also see this as God's vows in chapter 26 and their vows in chapter 27. It's also a recognition that vows to God are more likely in the bad times that were being described in chapter 26. So, if times get tough, and God's delivering discipline, people are likely to take vows, and this would describe how to regulate those things. Now, the whole idea of vows is interesting in the scriptures. They were acceptable in the Old Testament. Notable examples are 1 Samuel 1 with Hannah, 2 Samuel 15 with Absalom, and even in the New Testament, we have two examples in the life of Paul, Acts 18, 18, and Acts 21.23. But there's certainly an ambivalence about vows in the ministry of Jesus. He talks about "Let your yes be yes" in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five verses thirty-three through thirty-seven. James five twelve picks up the same theme. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. And Jesus certainly criticizes the misuse of vows in Matthew fifteen and Matthew twenty-three. But all that said, we're dealing with the Old Testament. Here, vows are allowed and they're regulated. Vows then and even now were often made in the heat of the moment, even by atheists at times in the proverbial foxholes. But they should never be rash and they should not be ignored or forgotten if made. And this underlines the importance of truth and the word and also lays out some basic incentives, excites an economist like me, to taking vows and fulfilling them. As Proverbs 20 verse 25 warns, it is a trap to dedicate something rashly and only later to consider one's vows. We have to be careful with the things we say and commit to. We have to be people of our word just like God is. Or think about Acts 5 after the beautiful opening to the early church in Acts 1 through 4. It's a broken vow that screws things up in Acts 5. The other angle I like on why Leviticus 27 closes things out is that it allows a re-emphasis on the key theme of redemption. We had seen the people of Israel redeemed out of Egypt in the previous chapter, chapter 26 verse 13, and in the future from exile as the chapter closed out, and now we have the practice of redemption by the people of Israel in imitating their good and great God. Now, in verses 1 through 8, it's talking about the redemption of people. Who would this be? be offering oneself or a family member, think of 1 Samuel 1 with Hannah, for temple service, or more likely the cash equivalent as a symbol since service was reserved for the priests and the Levites. The term value is used here seven times, and it's a function of age, which points to general health and longevity of life, and gender, which gets to earning power and opportunity cost. There are some differences by ages that are somewhat fascinating, at least to an economist. Uh, Prime ages, 20 to 60, are more valuable than ages 5 to 20, are more valuable than those who are older than 60, are more valuable than those who are infants 0 to 5. Matthew Henry draws an application here. Those that are in the prime of their time must look upon themselves as obliged to do more in the service of God in their generation than can be expected either from minors that have not yet arrived at their usefulness or from the aged that have survived it. Or another application, deathbed or late in life conversions are fine, but they're also a missed opportunity. The ideal is to serve God for all of our lives. Males were more valued than females in that culture, and economy, 50 to 100% more. In spiritual terms, Matthew Henry says the females were then less esteemed, but not so in Christ, points to Galatians 3.28. Milgram notes that the percentage was greatest for young men versus girls and least for older men versus women. This lower value on older men could point to their lower life expectancy or the relative value of grandmothers as dictated in Titus 2. And all of these sacrifices had a high value attached to them. The highest was 50 months' wages. Verse 8 lays out an exception here based on an ability to pay, in line with Second Corinthians 8.12, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. But in the ideal, this was supposed to be a very expensive vow. Verses 9 through 13 is redeeming clean and unclean animals. Let's read that passage. If what he vowed is an animal that is acceptable as an offering to the Lord, such an animal given to the Lord becomes holy, he must not exchange it or substitute a good one for a bad one or a bad one for a good one. If he should substitute one animal for another, both it and the substitute become holy. If what he vowed is a ceremonially unclean animal, one that is not acceptable as an offering to the Lord, the animal must be presented to the priest who will judge its quality as good or bad? Whatever value the priest then sets, that is what it will be. If the owner wishes to redeem the animal, he must add a fifth to its value. So, verse 9, if clean, the vowed animal becomes holy. In other words, it's God's. And so, verse 10, there's no exchange, something different, or substitute the same animal, especially, presumably, (laughs) substituting a bad animal for a good animal. It's not acceptable. And if they did that and were caught somehow, both become holy. Again, don't take God's stuff. Now, this could be done purposefully, and then maybe the person is caught or feels guilty about it. Or maybe it's done unintentionally, and they want to substitute a better animal to give properly to God. This is interesting in that it would impose a cost on people who are not careful enough with what we give to God. Give your best to God and then stick to it. The other story that comes to mind here is the difficult narrative in Judges 11 about Jephthah and the likelihood that Jephthah's daughter was permanently dedicated to tabernacle service because of the vow that Jephthah gave uh, before a battle. Verse 11, if unclean, the priest would judge its quality and set of value. Verse 13, it could be redeemed by paying 120% of the value. If not redeemed, apparently it went to the priest for use or sale. So these 20% penalties would encourage sober vows and appropriate evaluation of cost. Luke 14, Jesus talks about counting the cost, and so that's a broad application for us as well. Now, the next part of the passage is about consecrating or dedicating inanimate objects. Verses 14 and 15, a house. Again, the priest would judge the quality and set the value with redemption at 120% as before. Verses 16 through 21, family land. Again, redemption at 120% and the regulations one would expect with regard to the Jubilee year, as we talked about last week in Leviticus 25. Verses 22 through 24 is other land that's been bought. And again, the same thing we talked about earlier with the Jubilee. So bottom line is this is more resources for the priest and tabernacle service. The last reference of interest, at least to an economist, is verse 25, that all this is supposed to be by the tabernacle or standard shekel. Weights and measures comes under what economists call imperfect information. When you buy something, a pound of something or a gallon of something, you don't really know what you're getting unless the weight has been standardized and is regulated, and so the scriptures are recognizing that here. In verses 26 through 33, there are some other miscellaneous regulations on redemption or not. Verses 26 and 27 are with respect to the firstborn. Verse 26, if it's clean, you can't dedicate what already belongs to God, so that's a no-go. Verse 27, if it's unclean, it can be redeemed at 120%, as we saw earlier. Verses 28 and 29, more discussion of God's stuff. If it's been devoted to God, it's most holy to God. That word is added here. Uh, That's in contrast to verse 14, where you had dedication, which was merely holy rather than most holy to the Lord. So this is either something declared by God to be most holy or a deeper, complete, irrevocable form of giving by the giver. The phrase means literally that which is placed under the ban. It's something to be totally destroyed. The most interesting uh, narrative example of this is Joshua 7 and the sin of Achan. Verse 29 is people who are devoted to destruction. And again, they cannot be ransomed. They must be put to death. There's no selling or redemption here at all. It's for an individual's crimes which require the death penalty or in a holy war as declared by God against pagan countries in the promised land. And then finally, 30 through 33 are tithes of grain, fruit, and flock. This repeats the earlier instructions of 120% and no substitutions, and if you tried it, you would lose both. Verse 32 is interesting. Every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod, so this allows providence to choose which animal would be used. And then verses 30 and 32 is the reference to the tithe off of land production being one-tenth. This would be given to the Levites, who then gave one-tenth of that to the priests used to support both forms of ministry. What are the other purposes of this? I'll let Matthew Henry sum it up. He says, in this, they acknowledge God to be the owner of their land, the giver of its fruits, and themselves to be his tenants. They give him thanks for the plenty they enjoyed and supplicated his favor and the continuance of it. Finally, one more quote to circle back to why this is here. Gordon Wynnum says, On first reading, it seems a strange point at which to end, but the theme of vowing is in fact closely related to the principal concerns of the whole book. Men who dedicate themselves to God because, as it were, God's slaves are holy to the Lord. Some men, the priests, can serve God in the sanctuary. Those not of priestly stock can still serve God. Indeed, they must be holy, for God is holy. And of course, none of this is with respect to mere ritual. It's to live a life of justice and righteousness. It's to be pure individually and in community, in word and deed, with everything that we have. Reminds me of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Whether people aspire to the office of elder and deacon, we should all aspire to live elder deacon lifestyles. And finally, the very end of the book, verse 34. Is the same as the opening and it pounds in divine and mosaic authorship and talks about commands as giving and gift. When a good and great God gives us commands, they're in fact for our good. Alright, let's take our last break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at PureRadio.org. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Leviticus 26 and 27 today, covered Leviticus 26 in the first two segments, Leviticus 27 in the previous segment, and now we're at the end. So we're going to do an overview, highlights, wrap-up, conclusion to wrap up this great book. hope you've enjoyed it. I mean, 12 weeks on Leviticus, you probably weren't expecting that. I had six weeks of notes before bringing in a new set of commentaries that were just remarkable. Jacob Milgram, Gordon Winham, and Michael Morales were all terrific. They all greatly expanded my understanding of the text and its relevance to Jews, and understanding those reading it at the time, and then the New Testament applications as well. Michael Morales particularly good, and then a great book by Matthew Thiessen on how it ties the ministry of Jesus, and I'll refer back to that in just a minute. So first, a quick overview of what we've covered. Chapters 1 through 7 are the sacrifices. We covered this in three episodes, 93 through 95. Then chapters 8 through 10 are the tabernacle, the amazing show of God's presence at the end of chapter 9, and the staggering sin of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. We talked about that in episode 96. Then we have chapters 11 through 15 on ceremonially clean, pure, or unclean and impure with respect to food and the body. That was episodes 97 through 99. The most famous chapter in Leviticus was episode 100, chapter 16 of Leviticus, the Day of Atonement. Episodes 101 and 102 was chapter 17 through 22, which was the Holiness Code. The most famous parts of this are chapters 18 and 20, which are largely focused on sexual sin, and those surround the crucial chapter 19, which has a number of references to holiness in everyday life, including love your neighbor that Jesus quotes in the gospel. Episode 103 was last week. We talked about chapters 23 through 25, sacred time, and in between that was chapter 24 on God's presence. And then episode 104 is today, the wrap-up, chapters 26 and 27, about the covenant and the vows, God's words and our words which are used to close out this great book. I think one of the things that amazes me about Leviticus is that, depending on which commentator you read, they see four different climaxes in this book. The first is at the end of chapter 9, when God shows up at the tabernacle, and that is at the center of Leviticus. It is at the center of the Pentateuch, and it's at the center of the narrative, arguably, of the entire Old Testament. Since Eden, God's presence has been mixed and episodic, and now he comes to dwell with his people. And that moment at the end of chapter nine is just amazing. But there's a second climax. The most famous one is chapter 16 with the Day of Atonement. A third one is chapter 19 on the ethical code within the Holiness Code of chapter 17 through 22. That's a definitely a highlight of the book. And then finally, I think an underrated chapter is chapter 24. With the picture of God's light, the lampstand shining down on the people of Israel, pictured by the bread, the 12 loaves of bread, which stand in for the 12 tribes in chapter 24. The other angle here is about the presence of God, which is so important throughout the book of Leviticus, and it comes with increasing intimacy. You've got the powerful show of God in Leviticus 9 coming into the presence of the people and them coming into his presence. Then you have chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, where the high priest is allowed to go in, albeit only once a year, directly into the immediate presence of God. And then again, you have that picture in chapter 24, which is a picture of God's presence on all of the people through the picture of the lampstand and the bread in the most holy place. Aside from God's presence, probably the top theme in the book of Leviticus is God's holiness. The word holy is used in Leviticus more than in in any other book. And it's not just God's holiness, but his desire for us to be holy as well. So in large part, this is dealing with sin. There's three different words for sin. One is iniquity, which means twisted. You've got transgression, which means to cross a boundary. And then you've got the idea of missing the mark. And all of those have to be paid for. Beyond sin, though, there's also the trouble with fallen nature, that when our bodies are falling apart, when nature is struggling, that fallen nature is not consistent with a picture of a holy and perfect God. And so, the troubles that our bodies have, for example, in chapters 11 through 15, in Old Testament worship had to be kept away from God. They caused pollution, the tabernacle, and those had to be dealt with through ritual to deal with the uncleanness and impurity that came from bodily process. Not necessarily sin in that case, but just fallen bodies and nature. In dealing with sin, you have the ideas of atonement, or at-one-ment, to become at one with God again through atonement, nice play on words there, and repentance, which included restitution. And so, to get right with God, to get right with others is a big part of what's going on in Leviticus. But ultimately, all those efforts are insufficient, and that leads to the Day of Atonement, which covers everything. If there were sins that were unrecognized or otherwise unrepented, there had to be some way to pay for those and not let the sin and pollution build up, so to speak, over time. And the Day of Atonement is the ceremony that takes care of that. Now, all of this is the vertical relationship with God, but there's also this big emphasis on the horizontal as well. The restitution when we've done someone wrong, the rhythms of life, not mere ritual, but how we live our daily life. The fact that lay people are so involved throughout Leviticus, we read this as a priestly manual, but most of it is directed to the people. And then finally, you have the ethical code, both with respect to sexual matters, most famously in chapters 18 and 20, and with respect to other things in chapter 19, how do we treat other people? So, religion by itself is not the point here. It's to love God and to love others. Or putting it another way and looking at the structure of Leviticus, there's a huge focus on religion in chapters 1-17, through 17, but there's also a huge focus on community in chapters 18-25. through 25. Related to this point, it's never meant to be mere ritual. It would have been tempting to reduce it to that to reduce it to something the priest did for you, but you were supposed to be involved and it was supposed to be a matter of the heart. While it would have been easy to overlook this or look past it, even in Leviticus, you see a huge emphasis on the spirit of the law here, what was supposed to be accomplished by these efforts, by these rituals. In all of this, we approach Leviticus like any other book of the Bible. What did it mean to its contemporary hearers? And what does it mean for us now, both with respect to an understanding of God or theology and what's expected from us in terms of conduct? So I think one of the great things that comes out of a good study of Leviticus is a greater understanding of what God was trying to do with the people of Israel, to understand the context they came from, their recent history as slaves in Egypt, For a very long time, and God's desire to form a new nation out of them from amongst the other pagan nations. And this is so hard for us to understand because we have thousands of years behind us, right, in between this time and Israel's time, where that's not the way it was, where God's influence through Israel and through Christ and through the early church have changed the world in ways that makes it very difficult for us to understand where Israel was as God was working with them. So, for one thing, I think this gives us humility as we approach the text, and hopefully we give the benefit of the doubt to the text, because we're trying to understand something from years ago in such a very different context. If we don't understand something, we dig and we look and we try to figure it out, and we interpret it in light of other scriptures. But at the end of the day, we're not going to understand every detail in a book like this. The other point in terms of context is that there were different sorts of pagans, and so Israel is leaving behind the technical sins of Egypt and the flaws of that sort of society with the passionate sins of Canaan that they're about to go into. And so, all of these laws are meant to deal with both of those errors in avoiding God or worshiping different sorts of gods rather than the God of Israel. Let me make three points in closing this out. I think Leviticus also teaches us that how we worship is important. Obviously, the object of worship, but also the form of worship is important. I don't think you can read Leviticus and just imagine that anything goes with respect to worship. It's so detailed. And so I think this is a call for us to consider how we worship God and whether we're doing it in a way that is consistent with what we hope to do in terms of glorifying God through the act of worship. Second is the important role of time and Sabbath in the divine economy. As Morales puts it, what good is it to have sacred space with a priestly humanity, sacred status, apart from appointed times of fellowship with God, sacred time? Leviticus prescribes daily, weekly, and annual rhythms, laying out sacred time and sacred practices in what becomes sacred space as a sacred people in the presence of a holy God. And for us, with our busy schedules and our distracted minds, Do we do the same? Do we observe sacred space and sacred time? Utopians and progressives have a low view of time. They imagine that we live without limits, but instead we're rooted in time and place and space. We worship a God of history and creation. And then finally, we look to the person of Jesus. His ministry is a type of so many things that happen in Leviticus. And then in particular, the way he deals with ritual uncleanness in his ministry. This is where Matthew Thiessen's book is so impressive, and I covered this in episode 99. Jesus doesn't just paper over the leper, the bleeder, the demoniac, and the dead. He actually comes to do battle with those areas of uncleanness, not just to put a band-aid on those things, but actually to heal. Thanks be to God for the book of Leviticus. Thanks be to Jesus for fulfilling Leviticus. Good to be with you today. Previous episodes are available on podcasts through iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. And we hope you'll join us the next time on The Word Diet.